excited to introduce you to Andy, a physician's assistant with a remarkable journey that spans from military service to his current role as a flight PA for a medevac company. Andy's career has been defined by his unwavering commitment to help others, both with serving his country and in the realm of healthcare. Notably, he's a strong advocate for supporting individuals dealing with PTSD, a cause close to his heart. Join us for an engaging conversation as Andy shares his experiences from aiding fellow soldiers during his reserves to his crucial work as a flight provider. This episode contains insights into healthcare, some of his time in his service, and the importance of mental health awareness. Let's get started. All right, Andy, thank you so much for joining us today on the Noon Podcast. I appreciate you coming on today. Oh, of course. I'm, I'm stoked to be here. I'm super stoked. We ran into each other. I don't even remember. Was it El Paso? Yeah, it was... Uh... Yeah, at Millionaire when uh, both our crews were uh, refueling there and uh, had our little our chance encounter, and now now here we are. Here we are. <laughs> and you actually know um, my last partner, which is funny. It's such a small world. That's one of the things I really like about you know working in the the air ambulance community and the kind of pre-hospital community, especially when you're in the same state. But yeah. Um, Turned out, you know, so after after we had our run in, um, I guess to backtrack a little bit, a couple months ago I got a new vehicle and I was selling the old bike rack that was on my previous vehicle and put it on Facebook Marketplace. And this guy who actually lived a couple blocks down hit me up. He was interested in buying it, and I I kind of squinted at his profile photo and I'm like, huh, that looks like uh, that may be an A star in the background there. Uh, <laughs> and so we met up to to make the deal. And, you know, this guy with this uh, slick back hair, butts on the side, he had all these stickers on his car. And it was, you could tell right away, like, this is the guy I'm, I'm going to get along with. You know, it was all fly fishing stickers and mountain bike stickers. And it turned out that uh, he worked for Classic uh, as a uh, flight nurse. And we became, we became buds, had a lot of common interest. And a couple weeks ago, after our, after our chance meeting there, I was telling him about it. Uh, I was like, hey, I'm going on this podcast, uh, 911 Nonsense, uh, with, the, with this flight medic, Sam. And he's like, huh, well, that's funny. That's my old partner. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so yeah, small, small world, man. It is a small, he's one of my favorite favorite partners and he's definitely been one of my bigger supporters throughout this whole uh, adventure it's been really cool he's he pushed me a lot in the beginning and he's helped support a lot of the ventures that i've done so really really cool but uh andy let's go ahead and get an introduction and who you are what you do yeah you bet so uh my name is andy french i'm a i'm a flight pa um on the army side uh, we take on the title of aeromedical physician assistant and I work for an air ambulance company uh, based out of Southeast New Mexico. And I also work uh, part-time at a couple different ERs in Albuquerque as an emergency medicine PA. And then on the side, I, I also still serve in the Army Reserves as a PA currently. And I became a PA in 2019, so just in time for COVID and to learn uh, what burnout is, right? As, yep. we, uh, <laughs> as we all unfortunately learn. Yep. 
But uh, uh, yeah, it was rough, wasn't it? <laughs> yes, it was. It was a rough couple of years, man. But prior to that, I had received my paramedic license in 2014. I spent some time working uh, in EMS and then made that crossover working as a paramedic and, and a couple different ERs uh, in different parts of the of the nation here. But not not as much time spent in healthcare as, as some of your guests or as yourself, because this was kind of my second career. I worked as a military intelligence officer and then a psychological operations officer on active duty for a long time in the Army. Um, and I, I'd also done some other things on the side, worked as a raft guide. I was a uh, ski instructor for a little bit out in Washington. So kind of all over the place, you know, deciding what I want to do when I grow up. But I'm, I'm super happy to be here and I'm appreciative that we ran into each other and yeah. learned about this podcast. That's super cool, man. It sounds like you've had quite the interesting ride in a very short period of time, which is still really cool. Can I ask, um, since you have paramedic uh, experience on your side and PA, like, what is the difference in your current flight job? Like, what can you do more as a PA than you could as a medic? So for our company specific, some of the things and services that we offer that you probably won't see with most air ambulance services is we have the ability to do field thoracotomies, uh, lateral kinthotomies. We are, we can do field amputations if need be. So yeah, and that's it's kind of a scary one. I don't, I, we haven't had to do one yet. Um, and most of those things require, we still have to call our med director and let them know what's going on. And we kind of bring that that in-hospital background to the back of our fixed wing or, or rotary wing aircraft. And then when you pair that up with our flight medics, it's it's just a, a combo made for success. I found that our, our flight medics come with a lot of experience on the tangible side. You know, it, when you really need that IV, you don't want me doing that. You want my flight medic because yeah. <laughs> it's gonna take me a couple sticks, right? Yeah. Uh, but when we're interpreting that EKG and, and trying to figure out what's going on and figuring out the pathology behind what we can do, uh, that's that's kind of where we, we come into play. And it just really, it gels well. Um, it, it makes this really effective team. And we were pretty much considered like a dock in a box. So where we work, a lot of rural hospitals out there. And if you're at a very small ER that maybe does not have the best providers or they need another provider to help stabilize a patient before we fly them out, we can come and bring that along with whole blood and ultrasound and, and a couple other really fun toys. Yeah, that's really cool, man. We don't carry blood, but we can transport blood. The issue is a lot of the times when we're transporting patients who need blood, it's because there's not enough blood at the facility that they're at, so. <laughs> right, yeah. We don't carry a whole lot, you know, we'll, we'll carry one unit of whole blood and uh, two of uh, liquid plasma uh, generally, but sometimes that's what you need, especially on a scene call, you know, that, yeah. that patient that may need that. Yeah, no, that's really cool, dude. Yeah, it's, it's been an awesome job. I'm very fortunate because there's not many critical care, you know, air transport systems out there that bring aboard PAs um, and even sometimes MPs. You'll see physicians sometimes with them, which we do have physicians and we do have MPs as well that work for us. But yeah, I've been very fortunate with this with this company that I'm working with. Yeah, yours is one of the only companies I've seen uh, with the upper level providers. And I think I've met a couple of your NPs and a couple of your physicians as well. That's how I knew, um, you know, your services offered that, which is really cool. It's a, it's a unique pairing 
especially here in the state, you know, we don't see it. The typical pairing is either nurse paramedic or nurse RT, you know? Right. Yeah. And there's, you know, there's a, there's a learning and education component to it as well. That goes both ways. You know, that, that flight medic that I'm paired with, you know, they're, they're learning a lot about how a clinician, a PA, a doc, an MP thinks and looks at what's going on and, and maybe, you know, some tools for assessment and things like that. Whereas, we learn a lot from the medics too. You know, you look at it, how many times a PA has innovated versus a, a field medic, especially a flight medic. I guarantee you that flight medic probably has five times <laughs> as many, you know, tube drops uh, compared to yours truly. So um, they know all the little tips and tricks to, you know, first attempt success rate and messing with the monitor and adjusting the vents. Um, so that, that education and learning really goes both ways and makes both components of that team even better. Yeah, no, that's awesome. You were telling me a little bit about some of your history, you know, before we started recording the podcast and some of the stuff you've had multiple, it sounds like multiple deployments. Yes, yes, correct. Yeah, I've, I've, I've made a couple trips to Iraq, uh, one to Afghanistan, um, one to another Middle Eastern country uh, that we'll leave out. And then, you know, I was very blessed in that uh, I got to travel really all over the world with the Army. I, I lived in Korea for a year. I've uh, done missions in Indonesia, Malaysia, um, Australia, Thailand. Um, and then I'm actually getting set to uh, go out to Africa this year uh, to Tunisia for an exercise. Um, wow. So it's, yeah, it's been, it's been really, it's been wild. It's been a wild trip. Sometimes I forget all the places I've gotten to see and experience. And again, very, very lucky that I was afforded those, those opportunities. Yeah, for real. So are you still active duty or? No. So I left, I left active duty in uh, 2014. And that's actually when my healthcare career interest in it was, was kickstarted. But I did decide to stay in the reserves, and I, I still serve in the, the Army Reserves. I actually work with a unit pretty much right down from where I live here in Santa Fe, and it's one of the best jobs I've ever had, You know, kind of like we were previously talking about. My, my sole job at this uh, unit I'm with now is just to train combat medics. And as a PA and as somebody who worked as a paramedic, you couldn't ask for a better job. It's absolutely awesome. I, I really love being able to see these kids grow and, and learn more and see their interest in it. Cause you know, I was, we were both there at one point, right. Mm -hmm. uh, you know, being EMT and seeing what the paramedics do and be like, I want to do that. Yep. So it's, yeah, it's been, it's been a lot of fun. And uh, I think coming up this year, I'm going to be moved to a different unit out in Texas to take a more leadership role as our uh, medical battalion executive officer, which is, Basically, I'm getting hired on to, to herd cats. So I'll be sad to leave, but you know, you got you got to move uh, move on and move up, right? Exactly. Congratulations, man. That sounds like a, a pretty cool title and a pretty cool job. Thank you. Thank you. I appreciate it. Yeah, we'll, we'll see how it goes. We'll see how it goes. It'll, it'll be good. It'll be good. Positive, positive mindset, right? That's right. That's right. Positive mindset in all things, right? So have you had any experiences where, I mean, you're super smart, clearly you've moved up the ranks and you've done a lot of things. Have you had any experiences where you were embarrassed or kind of put into your place? Too many to count. Too many to count. <laughs> I, yeah, too, too many to count. I am definitely a person that I, I may seem smart. I think I, I think I talk well, but I have to learn by experience. 
And a lot of times that is, is the hard way. And, you know, on the, on the medical side of it, I've definitely had some close calls um, where I've almost made a, you know, some pretty major mistakes as we all do in, mm-hmm. in healthcare. No, nobody is perfect. Right. And they've been great learning experiences. You know, when I first started as a PA, I, I pretty much went right into emergency medicine. And it was what I always kind of wanted to do when I decided I wanted to get into healthcare. My, my father is a uh, emergency medicine physician. He was a Coast Guard flight surgeon for like 37 years. So he also wow. flew. So, you know, that's, those are looking back now, I realize why I do what I do and why I wanted to do it. <laughs> Even though in the younger years, I was like, I never want to be like my dad. I'll be nothing like him. Well, <laughs> here I am. Yeah, here we are. <laughs> but, uh, <laughs> but yeah, I had a, I had a near miss once where we had a, it was a young guy. He was about 35 years old and he was a diabetic and he was having, um, some like buttocks pain and he had what looked like just like a palomidal abscess or it could have even been like in, in the buttocks, but obviously looked infected, very red, very tender, but he was a pretty, you know, vitals were stable and everything. I'm like, Oh, this, this is easy. Let's IND this. And so got everything up to go ahead and do a incision and drainage. And I was just going to pack it with gauze and literally had this guy with his pants down <laughs> and on the table and everything set up. And I had the scalpel out. I was like, something just doesn't seem right about this. And my ultrasound skills at the time weren't great, so I didn't feel comfortable ultrasounding it. So I did what every good emergency medicine practitioner does, and I threw him into the old donut of truth there and got a CT scan. And it turned out this guy had raging Fournier's gangrene. Oh. <laughs> yeah. You, you would never know from the external look, but the, the CT rarely lies, you know? And man, if I had cut into that, I would have had every surgeon in, in Albuquerque up my ass <laughs> asking, what the hell were you doing? Dumb PAs. Jeez, I can't believe you did that. So um, yeah, I've I've had a lot of close calls and a lot of times where I felt stupid. Absolutely. But you know, it's how, how you deal with it, I think is the important part there. When you feel stupid or, or you had a close call, if you can if you can analyze that and see how it's going to change your practice and take measures to make sure that you don't do it again, whether that's, you know, education or, or talking it over with, you know, maybe somebody more experienced. That's, that's the makings of a good provider. But there's some people that have those near misses and they blame it on, they blame it on the monitor. They blame it on the equipment. They blame it on everything else except looking at like, well, maybe this was my fault and maybe, maybe I could do this better. And I've, I've had some missed innovations too. So good thing they pair us up like the flight medics that I was talking about. (laughs) So one of my missed intubation attempts, and I don't remember if Mm -hmm. I've talked about this previously or not, but we had an older lady who had coded and she had just finished eating breakfast. So went in, I got the opportunity to intubate and it was just a messy airway. Like she didn't have any teeth, which made it easier, but she had like eggs and potatoes, like full chunky, (laughs) full chunky airway. Yeah, so we suctioned out, we scooped out what we could. I went ahead and made the intubation attempt and uh, ended up in the esophagus. And you know right away when you're in the esophagus because it comes up the tube, right? So I was at the head intubating. I had a firefighter kneeled right next to me 
and I saw it coming up the tube. So I turned the tube to the right and it just got all over oh, this no. guy's leg. And I was like, I'm so sorry, bro. Like, I'm so sorry. Oh, man. I, <laughs> I left the tube where it was and I went ahead and made a second attempt and I was successful the second time. But I felt really bad for that firefighter because he had to, you know, he had to go shower after that. You literally fire hose down the firefighter with vomit. Yeah, with <laughs> eggs. It was eggs and orange juice and all kinds oh. of stuff. <laughs> All the good Man. breakfast stuff, you know. Oh, that's gnarly. Yeah, so even even using that the salad technique really wouldn't have helped. Sounds like it was chunky. It was chunky. It was pretty chunky, and oh. you know, <laughs> but it was good. Yeah. It was, hey, that, it was that, a good learning. Yeah, you you got the second attempt. Like, yeah, you, you got it in. That's that's all that matters. That that's gonna be me one day with my uh, my obsession with gas station burritos. I'll be the guy that's being innovated and having eggs and potatoes and <laughs> oh man i love gas station burritos you can't go wrong with those oh no they're so good they're good they're, they're so oh good. i want one right now <laughs> have you tried uh i'm gonna i'm gonna name drop here have you tried burritos on stantes yet no oh you're missing where is out. it down in albuquerque it is there's a couple locations here actually and some down in Los Angeles. Right, burritos on stante i'm writing it down yeah, one of my favorite burrito places here. And it's just like a little hole-in-the-wall place, too. Like, so good. Yeah, my, my go-to is one down in um, Roswell. It's uh, a New Mexico Burrito Factory. And it is officially a gas station burrito because it's inside of an Avon. <laughs> and, man, it's unreal. I actually, I'm not going to lie, I ate two of them on my way back this morning from work. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, whatever you got to do to make it healthy, right? Like... <laughs> If you're gonna I do tell it, myself right. it's healthy. <laughs> yeah. yeah, yeah. It's got eggs and protein and all natural, organic. There you go. Even better. The tortillas are probably made in Albuquerque. I don't know, but <laughs> hey, I honestly I don't care where they're made because they're that good. You, they could yeah. be making them, you know, on top of the dumpster out back. I'll still I'll still down two or three of them. I'm gonna have to reach out to some of my friends down there and then maybe I'll catch one the next time we fly down there. Yeah, there you go. I dig That's it. fantastic. What are some of your favorite missions or calls or life situations, whatever? Like, yeah, you know what? I guess what I'll well kind of talk about just kind of kind of keep with the the theme of of your platform, what you got going, which sure again, I I think is super important. Talking about the behavioral health component of uh, providers that work in healthcare and, and first responders, you know, whether that's pre-hospital, in-hospital. You know, I, I, it really is a problem and it, I think it's starting to get more awareness. I think podcasts like yours are definitely helping with this, especially now that we're in top 10%, right? Top 10%, um, brother. <laughs> hell yeah, baby. But, uh, you know, I guess, I guess to start off with when I was a much younger, more naive young man that really hadn't had a lot of real world experience, I had this really skewed perspective on behavioral health. I didn't really believe it was a real thing. You know, I, I thought people who committed suicide or fell into these depressive episodes, that it was a, a choice for them. And, and it's embarrassing to, to say this now, you know, I've, I've obviously learned a lot, especially working in healthcare and, and dealing with, with some of my own problems. But I thought it was like a sign of weakness that if you couldn't get over your depressive episode or whatever was going on, on the mental health side, that you just had a, a weak mind. And, as I started experiencing more and going through more and uh, good old karma came and, and bit me right up in the ass too. started dealing with my own mental health problems. 
you know, I, I learned the hard way and obviously that that perspective changed and things kind of started or, or culminated after my, my first deployment uh, in Iraq. And I had experienced a lot of firsts on that deployment. One of them was really experiencing grief and, and the loss of loss of somebody uh, from a tragic circumstances. You know, I, I had had family member, older family members that had passed away before, but it just, it didn't really have the same effect on me. But I had a, I had a good friend, his name was Daniel Hyde, First Lieutenant Danny Hyde, and just one of the nicest guys you would ever, ever meet. Very smart. He was a West Point graduate. We were, we were in the same uh, battalion and everybody, he was that guy that he was your friend, he was your peer, but you also looked up to him because just had a very strong leadership presence and knew how to talk to people. And I had, at the time we were still doing year long deployment and I had just come back from r and I had gone home and then I think I spent a week in like Puerto Rico. And I flew back to one of our bigger bases called Cobb Spiker. And I was sitting outside of where I was temporarily staying at the time, waiting to go back to our smaller operating base. And all of a sudden this truck pulls up and it was one of our warrant officers. And one, I didn't know how he knew where I was or that I was there, but he said, hey, get in, get in the truck. We got to go to the cache, which was one of our, the cache is an acronym for uh, our, our military field hospital. So we drive to this, this field hospital and as we're coming in, we see one of the medevac Blackhawks coming onto their, their landing pad, taking this guy off and you could just tell he's, he's a mess. I mean, kind of blood draining everywhere. And it turned out, it turned out it was Danny. And he had been on a, uh, either on a convoy or on some mission and uh, some enemy fighter had thrown an RKG grenade at his truck, which is a grenade that has the ability really to blast through really thick armor. And it just turns, it just melts it and had gotten him really, really good. And, and he was alive, uh, I think, for a good portion of the transport, but at some point he coded. And they were not able to get Danny back. So he, he unfortunately was, was killed in action. And I had never had somebody that, a good friend or another, seen another young person who had so much life left to live and so much more to offer, all of a sudden, tragically, you know, die and i really didn't know how to deal with it how to compartmentalize with it and again going back to what i said i had this notion that you know ptsd depression those things they that's just again if you can't get over that that's that's a weak mind so i did what unfortunately most of us do uh in you know law enforcement ems military stuffed it down just just keep pushing it down and mm -hmm. don't worry it'll it'll go away and later on it would it would kind of come back to haunt me and i would i would start seeing symptoms when i got back but you know the other thing that was new to me was it was really my first time experiencing what hypervigilance feels like and what what that can do you you learn really quickly uh and and come to the conclusion that oh yeah hey wait i'm in a country that is very serious is very dangerous yes <laughs> I could get shot at, blown up, you know, at any time. And then when you start seeing that, oh, this is actually happening to the people around me, reality sets in. Um, and it's it's hard to turn off. You know, you, you are just constantly looking for a threat. Um, it's hard to let your guard down. 
and you know there was we were on a patrol once and i was coming around the corner of a building and all of a sudden just heard like a and a little dust cloud in front of me i was like huh i wonder what that was that's kind of weird maybe somebody threw a rock or something at me and then two more <laughs> i'm like Jeez. Well, these things are getting closer i'm like oh i'm getting shot at okay all right that makes <laughs> that makes sense i see what's going on now took a second uh, to figure it out <laughs> Yeah, yeah, your your first time, it's it's hard to realize what's going on. But after that, you know, then then you know what it is. Uh, so yeah, I, obviously, like most most young men and women, really, at what point in high school or or you know college or, or whatever the, you know you may be doing, or you can experience that, unless you're unfortunately like a very underprivileged, uh, dangerous you know part of the nation. Yeah, and so you're you're in that mode. You know, stuffing down the grief portion, and constantly dealing with this this hyper vigilance for nine months, a year, some people fifteen months, and then they're like, "All right, you're done. Go ahead, go home." Yeah. <laughs> and you can't just turn it off, right? No. And what's funny was that I found that those those two different things kind of resulted in in different symptoms. Uh, dealing with trying to turn off that that switch of being constantly, you know, on alert, I would find that I was becoming extremely anxious. I had like no patience anymore, very hot headed. I, I almost got into a fight with some poor old lady crossing guard. My, I think my brother was with me and I was, I was stationed in Hawaii at the time. So we'd come back to Hawaii and I had this a little 97 Jeep Wrangler and top was down and we'd cruise around in it and bounce all over the island and that a four-way intersection that was by a school and stopped and then turned and there were kids that were walking down the sidewalk to use the crosswalk and the crossing guard hadn't quite gotten there yet and she she kind of let me have it she was like you need you know something like you need the weight or yelled something at me and i stopped the jeep and just got in this shouting match with this poor old lady who probably probably volunteers her time to do this to ensure the welfare and safety of small children yeah you know and here's this young dumb guy rolling through on a jeep you know top down getting in a fight with her i mean man so stuff like that you know constantly looking for for an argument for a fight and uh drinking a lot oh i'm drinking sure a lot uh so yeah a bunch a bunch of unhealthy ways of coping because i didn't believe i had a problem again i didn't think this was a real thing couldn't maintain a relationship and you know if i if i had more healthy outlook on what mental health was at the time then it probably wouldn't have bubbled up in, into what it was and i think i did what most people in that career field and what i think people do that work in ems and law enforcement too it, it attracts a very specific personality type i believe which is the type of people that don't like failure. You know, they want to be they want to be successful and they want to be at the they want to be at the top of the class, the the best EMT they could be, the best paramedic. And so when we have problems, the, these types of people, they the answer is to just put your head down and row. Just dig your heels in, push forward until you are successful. Yeah. And uh, the problem, you know, the problem there is I feel like a lot of these types of people equate PTSD and depression or 
maybe other behavioral health related disorders like like adjustment disorder to being a problem that you could just push through and i was one of those and so my answer to what to you know help resolve that what i thought was well i just got to get back to a combat zone and, and do it all over again if i feel this way and these things are going on then i just didn't do it right the first time yeah <laughs> so you know so i just i was like all right let's let's get on another deployment and this time will be different it's got to be uh, that and, and again, lots of drinking and and so you know the next place I found myself in was was Afghanistan and then uh, yeah and I'll I'll you know I'll kind of take a, a pause there I could I could go into Afghanistan too because that that really turned things up a notch. <laughs> Did it? Yeah. No, I'm glad that you talked a little bit about hypervigilance because it's something that we've discussed in previous episodes. Uh, you talked about it in a good way where you're in this constant environment and then at the end of your deployment, you know, however many months it's been, now you're told, well, go home. And it's crazy because we experience hypervigilance in EMS too, right? Especially out here in areas where there is, you know, a high prevalence for uh, violence, you know, in the ambulance, you constantly had to be aware because we didn't have bases where we could go in and sit and hang out while we we're waiting for a call. We were expected to stay in our trucks. So you're in your truck for, you know, 12 hours and having to constantly be aware of what's going on around you because sometimes you're parked in not great areas of the city. Then at the end of your shift, 12, 14, 15 hours, you're expected to go home and you know, settle down and relax after that and then get up and do it again the next morning. Oh yeah, absolutely. And you know, and it's not just, I think on kind of the, uh, the civilian side, we equate it to crime, but it's not always just crime, you know, responding to a, like a motor vehicle accident, you're, you're always in danger on the side of a highway mm -hmm. or, you know, depending maybe where that, where that scene call is. And the other part to it is one, I, when I was overseas, you know, I had, I had a weapon. I, I could shoot back, you know, yeah, <laughs> that's true. They don't really give EMTs weapons, but, and it's not just the nine, 12 month deployment. You're talking about being in a state of hypervigilance for however long you're working EMS, maybe that could be four yeah, or five nine years. One system. You know? And it's not just, yeah, not just for EMTs, but working in the ER too. Um, you had to oh, be yeah. aware, especially in, and I'm sure it's, uh, accurate for a lot of hospitals, but having worked at the trauma center, you know, you had to constantly be aware of your back door and your front door and, you know, be cognizant of what's coming into trauma because you never know what's rolling in. No, that's, that's a great example. Uh, you know, like, like we we're saying, it's not just crime related. It's maybe a hyper vigilance for being able to know what's going on in the surrounds, to be able to, to save somebody that may be severely injured. Yeah. Or working in a super busy ER, you know, if you're sometimes these providers are picking up like seven, eight patients at a time, and it only takes a minute for one of them to really start decompensating and and circling the drain. And so, yeah, I, I think it's applicable to so many different things, not just not just combat and not just military. As so, yeah, I, I totally wholeheartedly agree with that. I've 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 gotten my fair share of uh, fights in the ER too, um, but usually we're pretty fortunate. There's usually, you know, some nurses or medics or RTs that are much bigger than me and you can't keep them out of the gym and <laughs> yeah. just use those guys as muscle. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> that's sometimes that's all you can do. And it's really, it's, 
I've made I've made quite a few nurses and uh, physicians upset in the last couple of years that I've been working in flight because there's such a high demand for psych transports. You know, high mm -hmm. high demand right now because our ambulances are so short staffed that they can't transport out of city or out of state. So the option is to right. go with flight, and they're upset because I'm telling them just because you have this guy on a hold doesn't mean i'm going to allow him in the airplane right so or she if they are if that person is upset they're aggressive they're violent in any way i'm not taking them in an airplane if they don't want to go in an airplane oh, no. i'm not forcing them into an airplane you know that's we don't have the seven or eight people that you have if something changes rapidly with this patient yeah and your odds of a you know a safety incident occurring with a patient like that skyrocketing compared to treating them in in the hospital you know right. and you do exclusively fixed wing yes you're not going to get my fat ass in a rotor sorry well I mean, and that's that's who they like to call for this psych stuff too it's like oh yeah, no, it's rotor nuts. won't take it it's gotta go no. on the fixed wing so you probably man you probably get a lot of that yeah, that's that's dangerous and that's hard. Yeah, it's it's a high percentage. Um, if I had to guess, I'd say somewhere between thirty and fifty percent of our call volume is is psych related. Holy cow! Wow. I think more companies are accepting the psych transports, but we, you know, we're our company is known for transporting psych patients. Yeah. Yep, and we we all know the sending facility always lies about how that patient has been. Like, oh, he's yes. been nice and friendly and yes. calm and redirectable. <laughs> and then as soon as you get him on that aircraft, it's the gloves are on, baby. Yes. You know? <laughs> yep. Well, and the, the, the bad part, too, is that a lot of these facilities won't accept those patients, again, if they're aggressive, if they have to be restrained either physically or chemically. So if that patient can't walk in and talk and be able to hold a conversation, they are not going to accept them. So if something happens in flight and you end up having to restrain that patient, either physically or chemically or both, right? Um, you end up yeah. buying that patient another ER visit and likely another ER visit that's not in the same city where you pick that patient up at. Oh my God, what a mess. Yeah. Uh, yeah, that's that's frustrating, and then, yeah, the cycle just continues. You know, it's um that's unfortunate. And then what do you, what where those people go? Eventually, they probably just go back out on on the street or wherever they were before. Yeah, it's it's very sad. Yeah, it's crazy. There, something needs to be done for more mental health help in the state. You know, after we closed down all of those units, it's just gotten so bad. Yeah, you know, I, I'm curious. I'm curious what you think too. You know, I understand that in the '60s and you know maybe part of the '70s that there was so much bad shit going on in these in these mass institutions that they had. But you know, I, I think a lot of the problems that we see in the world today um, can all be almost all be boiled down to to mental health issues and. Yep. And a result of the, the lack of resources, because institutions like that don't exist anymore no. on on a on a mass scale. But I mean, look at what just happened in Albuquerque not that long ago, right? That that drive-by shooting, or that it was a, a road rage incident where the guy ended up shooting into the car that he was arguing with and killed that poor eleven-year-old uh, child. When you when you boil that down, I mean, to think that that is the right answer to an argument because maybe somebody moved into your lane or 
or whatever may have started it. I mean, that's that's a behavioral health issue, thinking that that is a logical reaction. I know. And not not the first kid that's died in a in an automobile argument here in Albuquerque. Yeah, right. Or school shootings, school shootings too. You know, to think that's a logical answer. It's it's. I think it's all behavioral health, and I think it could be correlated back to not having mass institutions like that to provide, um, you know, inpatient and outpatient services on a on a broader scale. Or not making it available financially for people, even if they're not doing inpatient. Oh yeah, right? absolutely. Yeah, I 100% agree. I I think you know. We say we have a, you know, a gun crisis, or we have this crisis or that crisis. I, I think really what we're dealing with on a national scale is a behavioral health crisis. I agree with that. Which is unfortunate. Yeah, it is really unfortunate, and you know, there's no resolution in sight, unfortunately. Yep. Yep. So, do you feel comfortable talking about maybe one of your your worst calls or your worst patients? Um. Yeah. Of course. Yeah. I. I you know, I love, I do love sharing this stuff. And cause I think sharing, you know, cases and experiences like this is what helps people maybe get the courage to get help or learn how to cope with things that, that they've seen or done. You know, I think one of the worst ones I saw, and this is, I wouldn't say it's the worst. I've kind of noticed this trend on some of the other people you've had on too. The gore, the trauma, that doesn't necessarily bother me. I think the cases that really get to me are where some type of emotional connection has been made between you and the patient. And I think one of the worst ones was I was working in the uh, an emergency department in North Carolina as a paramedic, and there was an automobile accident um, that came in with three traumas. It was a, a mother, a, a three-year-old boy, and then it was the male drunk driver that had hit them. And the mom came in as a code. The male driver had come in with bilateral open uh, tip-tip fractures, basically, you know, feet went into the went into the base of the floor mats there and then <laughs> went out, you know, the feet Ugh. exited the chat. And yeah. Tibs and fibs were, you know, saying hello. Um, <laughs> Gross. And then... <laughs> It was it was the first time I had actually seen a priaprism as a result of a neuro injury. This three-year-old boy had pretty much complete right-sided hemiparalysis in, in an active priaprism. And the mom, uh, they were not able to resuscitate. The, the drunk driver obviously lived. But seeing this poor three-year-old kid who could see his mom, by the way, because she was just in the bed next to him in our resuscitation bay and seeing, every, you know, everybody work on, on mom there and just the terrified look on his face. I mean, I, I think what gets to me is when you see something like that, putting yourself in that patient's perspective, especially thinking back to, you know, you don't know anything about the world when you're a three-year-old kid. Now all you know is that you are absolutely terrified. You don't know what's going on with yourself. You can't move your right side. And mom is obviously very, very badly injured. Um, and the whole time, you know, him just just asking for his mom, wanting to be with mom, uh, that one hit pretty hard. And that was kind of the one of the first times I came to the realization of how how fragile we are. You know, anything could happen at any time. 
you don't know, I could walk outside and, you know, part of the space shuttle could fall on me and kill mm -hmm. me. We, we just don't know. And, um, you know, I, I kind of came to those same conclusions over, over deployment too. You know, hey, tomorrow could be my time. That may be the day I step on that pressure plate IED uh, and, and I'm out of here, you know, red mist. So that, that one struck pretty hard. And at that time, again, I think I had started to come to the realization that I was dealing with some, some BH uh, issues from being and dealing with, with things like this. And I, this had happened when I had just gotten back from Afghanistan too. I had, I had left the, the active duty and was living in North Carolina. And that was a pretty rough deployment because I'd seen a lot of similar things. It was like my experience in Iraq, but like Spinal Tip says, turned up to 11, a lot more kinetic, a lot more dangerous, and uh, you know, a lot more death. One, one that I'll never forget is we, we were attached to a Afghan army uh, battalion. It was me and 12 dudes, and our, our job was to assist and advise them in, in conducting missions and work with them. Uh, we were on what was called a security forces advise and assist team. And they don't have all the great toys and armor and everything we had. And this place was, it was in Maiwan province, which is home of the Taliban. And it was just riddled with IEDs, so improvised explosive devices. And we had a, a ANA Humvee get hit by an IED. And one guy was injured. Another guy was uh, KIA. But this IED had just taken out probably a foot of his torso. It was, I mean, you could literally see through him and it was nothing but gobbledygook just in the, yeah. in the middle of it. It's a good description. Again, <laughs> yeah, yeah, that's, yeah, that's the best way I could explain it. Um, and again, it just made you realize, man, that, that could be me tomorrow. And it just, again, it, it, it hit on, like we are talking about that hyper, those hypervigilance notes. And yeah, that was that was that was another another good one. That's about the time I realized that you know behavioral health is a real thing. That was the deployment that started to change my my perspective on that. But when I got back, I I fell into the same pattern. <laughs> I did go see a counselor once, and I was like, all right, I'm cured. Yeah, I think a lot of people make that mistake. I was like, all right, <laughs> yeah. I did it. Ma'am, I'm I'm so much better. All right, time to go back to drinking. <laughs> uh, so now that you've had you've had all of these experiences, and that you went to the counselor, and you clearly recognized that that was not the answer was one visit. What have you done to make it better for yourself? So it really didn't happen until the last last year, maybe the last two years. I realized that this is something that's not going away. This may be a problem that I'm going to live with for the rest of my life, and I I need. I need to fix it. I need to find a way to cope with it. And I need, I need help doing that. And, and for me, it was, uh, I do see a psychiatrist and a psychologist and a counselor on a, on a pretty routine basis. I medications have helped me, you know, maybe that's not for everybody, but the cognitive behavioral therapy was definitely needed. And I think just realizing that this is, this is something I have to do to get better or learn, learn how to live with this. And then stop drinking. That helped. That helped a lot. <laughs> and also, you know, taking, just taking better care of myself. I think I have a theory that pre-existing medical problems, the symptoms from those worsen when you're also dealing with behavioral health uh, issues, you know, pain becomes 
worse when you're depressed. If you're diabetic or, or hypertensive, when you're when you're dealing with BH issues, you're you don't really take good care of yourself and eat right and, and exercise, right? And so, like most people that work in healthcare, I didn't have a primary care provider. I thought I, I could just take care of myself. And so, yeah. getting with a primary care provider and getting a, a good a physical and taking care of some health issues that I had let go for several years, I think also helped me get over that hump and, and learn to deal with this a little bit better. I had I had been dealing with ADD for, I mean, since I was a child and never, never saw anybody for it, never took any medications or anything. And uh, I noticed a profound difference once I had been evaluated for that and actually started taking something to help um, treat it. Uh, that had a huge impact in improving my mental health and dealing with my PTSD and depression. So I think taking care of yourself is a, a huge component to this as well and taking care of some of your other medical problems and just trying to live a healthy lifestyle. So where can we sign up for you as our, our PCP? <laughs> I don't do primary care. No. <laughs> I am, I'm emergency medicine, emergency medicine for life. I mean, that's technically PCP, right? Yeah, yeah. Uh, I guess, it, you know, these days it definitely is. That's I can't tell you how many blood pressure and... <laughs> and, uh, you know, other uh, PCP-related medications I've prescribed for people. Yeah, it's, you know, we really have an issue here in New Mexico with uh, a shortage of primary care providers. And it's it's hard to get in, you know, to see somebody yes, for is. that. I, I, totally, I totally understand. Three, four months to see a primary care provider. I mean, that's tough. What do you do in the meantime? Yeah. It's go to the ER. That's what you do. (laughs) Yep. You go to the ER. So that's the same thing, right? ER physician, PCP, it's all the same. (laughs) Yep. I'm just kidding. Exactly. No, that's the shortages I think in general are just so bad. And and I can't speak for any other state. I can only say in New Mexico, you know, the provider shortages that we have out here in both the hospital and the pre-hospital system is nuts yeah and there's this is not the healthiest population either this is a state that needs it pretty pretty bad (laughs) yeah like i know so my wife is seeing a rheumatologist and that rheumatologist is based out of california so we do all telehealth visits oh well i guess that's the one thing the good thing to come out of covid right is that the, the telehealth uh aspect of it you know really really blew up but it's just I can, I understand people's hesitation of wanting to do it. It's just not the same as getting like a physical evaluation and, yeah. and you know, being with that provider face to face, but at least she's able to get in. I'm glad she was at least able to see a rheumatologist. Yeah. So it, it cut our time. We were looking at, uh, well, they were talking about sending her out of state cause she was in the hospital and they said because they couldn't find any rheumatologist. So they wanted to fly her out. And I said, we are not going to fly her out. I will find her a rheumatologist, and and I did. And it was a telehealth visit, but still, she's one of the better doctors that we've worked with previously. So oh, that's that's awesome. Yeah, it's nice. I think one of the other things too that we're seeing is a move for like PAs and NPs in positions that we wouldn't have normally seen them in previously. You know, um, when oh, I yeah, worked definitely. at. Yeah, when I worked at the hospital here, they weren't allowing PAs and MPs in the ER, but that's since changed since I left because of their shortages. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and you know that's really why our profession came to be was uh, a shortage of available physicians in the nation back in the the 
the 60s, I think. Uh, and yeah, that, that is our whole, the whole foundation and uh, development of, of our profession as APCs, uh, mid-levels. So it's good that, you know, it, it's good to see it grow. And I'm, I'm glad to see it expanding out to different specialties too, because there really is a good pool of people that go into that mid-level, you know, education and could do a lot for those specialties. I, I've seen a huge increase in a lot of them going into like cardiology and a lot in ICU as well. And a lot of the surgical services as well. Uh, there's, you know, you can see quite a few uh, general surgery PAs. I had a buddy that I think he just went into, I think he went into nephrology as a PA. So yeah, it's, it's promising to see that. And hopefully that helps to lessen the burden on our, on our physicians that just don't have the ability to see the patient volume that's demanding their services. I agree a hundred percent. I think most of the providers my wife is seeing right now are NPs, you know, or PAs and she sees a lot. So <laughs> I can't think of, I mean, her last primary care was a physician and she saw him once before. I think, I don't know, he either retired out or something. We ended up having to make another appointment for another PCP, but um, even that, is a nurse practitioner now. So almost every, every every position that we've gone to see for her has had nurse practitioners or PAs in those positions, which is really cool. I think that we can put them through a similar, uh, you know, you go through a similar college uh, practice with PA and MP as a physician, just cut in half, but still providing a lot of the same levels of care, which is crazy. Yeah, and I, I could understand some people's and even some physicians' hesitation about maybe having EAs and MPs in, in certain specialties. And I'll be the first to admit, you know, the amount of hours that we spend both didactically and in the in the clinical uh, portion of our training and education, it, it, it doesn't hold a candle to what residents and, and physicians have to go through. You know, they they do come out of their education having seen thousands of cases, thousands of procedures. But I do think that a lot of that lack of experience can be made up on the job under the guidance mm -hmm. of a good, a, a good physician that is willing to, you know, kind of take those MPs and PAs and, and put them through the ringer and, and train them well. And they can, they can get to that point for sure. Has your wife been pretty happy with, the, the APC she's been, she's uh, had experience with. It's just nice because we get in a lot sooner than we normally would be. Oh, that's true. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. yeah. So the, so the treatment that Very she's true. needing, she's getting because we're able to see, you know, mid-level providers instead of physicians. Yeah. Yeah. I think that helps. And, you know, if it's something that a uh, mid-level doesn't feel comfortable with, they, they can always move it on up to, you know, whoever their attending is, which is, which is nice. You know, there's, there's a backup plan if it's something that, you know, we as a mid-level aren't comfortable with. Sure. So it's good to have that safety net there too. And it's not just in, you know, the mid-level providers that we're seeing this in, you know, and uh, I did discuss this in, in a different episode too. When I was working in the EMS system here, it was always an EMT and a paramedic, but they didn't have the staffing to support paramedics being on every rig. So they bumped it to like an ILS, so two intermediates or an intermediate and a basic. Well, there, there's like a, there's still a big uh, EMT shortage, right? Mm -hmm. I mean, across the nation. Yeah. How, how bad is it in Albuquerque? 
Um, I can't speak a hundred percent to it because I don't work in the, you know, in the nine one one service anymore. But like I said, they they switched from all ALS trucks to now ILS and some ALS trucks. Oh, so that's cur- that's currently. Yeah. Oh. <laughs> No bueno, man. <laughs> but if you think of the call volume that we're getting, too, you know, like, I don't know, probably, uh, I'm, I'm purely speculating numbers here, but probably 75% of the call volume is BLS patients. Yeah, that's 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 very true. You know, anybody that, say, I work at this, uh, a couple standalones as well mm-hmm. um, in, in Albuquerque, and yeah, very, very rarely am I asking for critical care transport or, um, or, uh, ALS. So yeah, that's, that's a good point. You're, you're absolutely right. Almost everything that I transfer out is usually BLS. And how do you feel transferring out BLS patients, <laughs> especially like if you're flying them, <laughs> right? If you're flying, do you think that justifies our services? On the flying side, where where I work, I I do just because like the BLS moves that we do is like a kid with appendicitis that is at a clinic in the middle of nowhere, and there is no EMS ground crew that can make that transfer. You know, in a more densely populated area that maybe has a more robust EMS system, I'd be I don't I don't think a air ambulance company would accept. Uh, accept that flight but yeah I, I could see circumstances where yes it, it would be it is needed um and again it's that's primarily related to like rural health care but they we have moved some stuff where i'm like what are we doing for real these people get these people can drive there i mean yeah oh yeah Move, moving the flying the ingrown toenail to El Paso or whatever yes. for, uh, for the, <laughs> the 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 special podiatrist the family friend podiatrist that they wanted to remove it. <laughs> yes, <laughs> it is funny the way we're shaping our healthcare services now is is quite interesting. The debates in because I'm on a few uh, social media pages where. Uh, people discuss that. Like, why are we flying so many BLS patients? Well, we're doing it because they need to be moved. It's not whether they need to be moved. They need to be moved. It's how we're going to move them. And just like we've talked about already, um, there's just so many shortages in EMS right now. Like one of the locations that we go out to really regularly on a reservation, you know, they they only have three or four trucks in their entire reservation running 911 calls and they're 48 hour shifts and they're running 48 calls in those 48 hour shifts. They don't have time to transport their patients, you know, from the reservation to Albuquerque where it's a, you know, three, four, five hour drive. They can't take an ambulance out of service for that long. You know, and then you're going on with EMTs who have no sleep. You want to take them out and put them on a long haul drive like that. Even if it's a simple, we don't have a, we don't have the MRI, you know, and we're not sure what this is. We'll send them out. Those people need to be moved. And, you know, some flight providers are upset by that because it is a BLS, but it, it does need to happen. Yeah. I think there's, there's a timing component to it and like a, a, a disease pro- progression component to it as well. You know, yes, at this time, this is a BLS patient, but 
in, in my, you know, maybe a day, this appendix is going to rupture and it's yeah. going to become an ALS <laughs> move. Yes. So I, I definitely understand it from there. Yeah, no, for sure. So do you have any memorable calls or patients that you want to discuss? Yeah. Um, you know, before before you asked me about what what I did to kind of improve and start come to terms with with my behavioral health issues, and I could tell you what really started it. And I guess to to preface that, last July I had come back from a, another deployment. Because <laughs> why not, right? You're I was, out again, all the time. Yeah, I yeah. know. <laughs> same same mindset. Be like, well, this one will change everything, right? Um, and when I, when I came back, it was kind of just a, a really, uh, shitty series of events. There, there was a lot of good things, uh, that had happened. I got, I got married. Um, I started a new job. Um, but kind of on the not so good side, I had a, an uncle pass away rather unexpectedly and suddenly, um, I had an old girlfriend pass away from a um, motorcycle accident. And then a couple months later, her daughter passed away as well. Oh, wow. And then, yeah, so a, just a lot of, a lot of bad stuff going on. An old childhood friend, my age, um, you know, 30, 38, passed away from colon cancer. And I was coming back from work on one of the rural rural roads was like a two lane, two lane road. And it had been a long shift and I just wanted to get home and came across an intersection where there was an SUV that had obviously been struck by this, this big white utility vehicle. It looked like it had rolled over a couple times and just kind of bodies everywhere and people standing around on their phones, everybody like calling 911 at once. And so I drove past it, looked at it, didn't see, didn't see any first responders. Nobody was on scene there yet. Nobody was doing anything. So you could tell just by like the people that were around, nobody with any sort of medical training. And I was like, oh, you know, I don't know if I should stop at this. Like, I really want to get, I really want to get home. And I really, you know, is there a liability issue with it? And then I, I maybe made it 400 meters past it. And I was like, what the hell am I doing, man? Like the whole reason I got into this profession is to help people, people that I just passed back there. And if you keep driving, then you're lying to yourself about why you did this. And so I, I turned around and it was it was a mass cow. It was a true mass casualty incident. In that SUV, it was a mom and her, her sister. They were both about middle-aged uh, middle females. And then the mom's three children that were like, 13, nine, and three. And ev they were, every single one of these patients had something going on with them that you would be worried about some major trauma. You know, it looked like a one had a femur fracture, one had a hip fracture, one was having abdominal pain. And then the three-year-old girl who was next to her mom had a pretty bad head injury. And it's always hard to tell with three-year-olds, but seemed to have some changes in mentation uh, as a result of it. And so did a quick, you know, rapid mass casualty triage, trying to figure out who's really the worst off. And really that little three-year-old seemed like, seemed like the worst off. And again, still no EMS around. So did what I could with the med kit out of the back of my, my truck and um, had started giving orders to people around. To make a long story short, what really got to me was I was, as I was taking care of that three-year-old little girl, the mom, she grabbed onto my leg and <laughs> said, 
please, please, please don't let my little girl die. And again, I think what really gets to me about this stuff is not the trauma or the gore, is putting yourself in that patient's perspective. And um, I just, I just felt her heartbreak and her concern. And you could tell she just would do anything to make sure that her little girl was okay. A month prior to that, um, my wife had become pregnant. And so I just really uh, empathized and, and sympathized with this, with this woman. And um, I, I, I don't know the, I don't know the outcome. Eventually EMS got there and I helped them load. And I think the UNM life flight uh, folks showed up, but then they couldn't take off because it started snowing. Oh my goodness. Um, but I, I, you know, when everything was done, they were sent off. You know, there was a sheriff there and I just realized it was kind of me just standing next to this SUV. It was almost like being in a dreamlike state. Um, it was a very weird and eerie sensation. And I, I drove home, uh, got in the shower and just started bawling, started crying. Um, and that was really combined with kind of those other things that had happened when I got back. That really was the event that kind of flipped a switch and initiated a decline into a real depressive state. You know, really didn't want to go out and do anything, became more reclusive. I just had no relationship with my wife. I just wanted to be alone. I slept a ton. All I did was work and sleep. That, that was pretty much it. And I, I wasn't telling my wife anything about what was going on. And it really impacted our relationship in a, in a negative way. And keep in mind, my, my wife is pregnant. This is a time where she needs me uh, more than ever. And I just kept pushing it down, pushing it down, pushing it down, and not doing anything about it. And it's, it's frustrating being a healthcare worker and going through something like that because in your head you're going through the dsm criteria you know exactly what's going on uh but it's like there's a, a mental block there that just stopped me from doing anything about it and it was very strange i knew i needed to do something i could see you know this downfall occurring and eventually it got to the point where my wife was like i, I don't know what's going on but i'm thinking about leaving you and my pregnant wife was going to leave me. It got, oh my it got that bad. Um, and that's what it took to, for me to open up to her about what was, what was happening and what I was, what I was dealing with. And that was the, the next week I called uh, the VA health line. And that's when I started getting the help that I needed. And I mean, what a, what a day and night difference once one, once I got it off my chat, that was that was a big part of it and once i again started taking care of myself and getting help and treating my disease because it, it's a disease it just it changed things immensely and so yeah that incident will always be ingrained in my head because that, that was the one that was the straw that broke the camel's back you know sure. that's the one that really sent me into that dark place and again not terribly gory not in i mean it was traumatic but more emotionally traumatic than than maybe you know that guy that got blown up in that Humvee. So yeah, that's that's one that that really really sticks with me. Yeah, that sounds like a notable one, and I think it sounds like a high stress one, especially if you were the only provider in the 
you know, a few instances that I've stopped on a car accident or something that we've noticed where somebody needs help, it's usually the, uh, you know, the podiatrist or the gynecologist that stops and says, I'm a doctor. What can I do for you? You know, and you're like, what are you? <laughs> yeah. I appreciate it. I'm a doctor it, of mathematics and I'm here to yes, save the day. <laughs> exactly. I have my PhD in, you know, literature, whatever. <laughs> <laughs> so it's it's good that you did stop and it's good that you recognized in yourself you know that that you did stop but there's been a lot of recognition in how hard and how much stress these jobs are putting us under and i don't know how to change it you know what do we do do we limit our exposure by limiting our shifts do we limit our exposure by only allowing people in ems for so long before we we flip them out, you know, how do, how do we fix this problem? Oh, I know that that is, I think part of the difficulty in addressing that is everybody's experiences vary yes. and what causes you or I trauma, emotional trauma may not have any impact on, on somebody else. And everybody's brain chemistry is so different and different techniques to help in the healing process and to help treat don't work for everybody either. Yeah, I think in our in our industry, I think the most basic place to start is allowing uh, or having a system in place for for de-stressing after difficult calls, you know, and I, I'm very fortunate in that the employer I work for now, I have no doubt in my mind that if my partner and I had a really bad call and we got back and we couldn't get over it, they would, they would take us, they would take us off and give us the time that we need to, you know, again, de-stress, debrief, talk about it, get it off our chest and then come back up when, when we're ready. Right. And that's, that's great. But not every, not every agency is like that. No, but I also think like you mentioned earlier, you know, not every call is that affects you is going to have gore or trauma, you know? And so I think that giving our providers the education, like the emotional intelligence to be able to say, you know what, that call really bothered me and it wasn't anything crazy. I don't know why it bothered me so bad. You had that emotional connection. You gave yourself to that patient and maybe somebody from the, looking from the outside wouldn't think, hey, I should go check on them because that was a hard call. You know, there nobody's going to say that. So I think like I said, giving our giving our providers the emotional intelligence to be able to be like, hey, that was rough on me. I need somebody to talk to and I need somebody to talk to now and then providing them the resources to do that would probably be a good step in, in you know, a good first step in the right direction. Yeah, and that, you know, that training is, is out there, but I have yet to meet anybody that's gone through it. Like I think NAEMT offers a course on on how to you know offer or conduct services like that and how to deal with that emotional trauma and work specifically with providers you know on that aspect of the job but i've i've never known anybody that's gone to it you know i, I think there's such an emphasis on people that if they're going to do training it's going to be you know your certification to teach acls or pals or or a, some sort of you know uh, driver's course or, or something like that. So, you know, what it may take is some type of federal law that every EMS agency needs to have at least so many 
one person per so many employees that is available and trained, uh, you know, specifically on de-stressing techniques for, uh, for providers. But yeah, that's, that's going to take lobbyists. It's going to take money. Yeah. It's going to take time. <laughs> yeah. A lot of energy, a lot of money, a lot of time. Well, hopefully we'll get there eventually. I, I hope so. I, I, I think they would, I think it, agencies would see the benefits in it in retention and a longer shelf life for, uh, you know, pre-hospital and even in-hospital providers. Yeah. Um, I, I, I think you would make your money's worth in having that available. And, um, you know, I, I, it would pan out that way, I think. I agree. And not just, I, it's hard to say, you know, but not just having them available through telehealth, but having having the option to go to an office or to have an in-person come in. But that would also require having that person to be able to come in. You know what I mean? Yeah, and yeah, absolutely. We're, we're, we're already having such a mental health shortage that that's just not, I don't think it's very feasible right now. Yeah. Did you ever get to a point of burnout in your, in your career? I'm sure you're having over 20 years. I'm, I'm sure oh, yeah. you've kind of hit those, those marks. You can talk to a lot of people. <laughs> yeah. I've, I've burned out. <laughs> I've burned out quite a bit. Um, honestly, moving into flight was nice because it gave me the opportunity to only work one job where, as I'm sure, you know, as an EMT, you know, I was having to work three, four jobs just to keep up. So coming to flight has, has been amazing for me and has given me the opportunity to do things that I want to do outside of work, which is podcasting or, you know, metal detecting, coin collecting, like doing the things that I really want to do where I didn't have time to do that before. And it's, it's um, also pushed me to grow in my profession, you know, getting my FPC certification in the last couple of years and going for more certifications that I wasn't able to go for before too. So burnout is a real thing. And I tell people all the time, you know, is that overtime shift worth it? It's not missing that family time, not worth it. No, I, I, I 100% agree. That's, that's been the nice thing about my, my flight job as well is it's a 96 hour shift and then 12 days. Oh, off. that's gross. And so again, <laughs> 96 hours. So that's so long. Oh, it, it, it is, it is. But, uh, you know, it's, it's having those 12 days on the back end is, is, is so nice, but all the same, all the same reasons, you know, it's, it's definitely improved my, my mental health, having, having that time to spend with family and, and do the things I want to do. What's what's the weirdest thing you found metal detecting? You gotta have found some really weird stuff. So my <laughs> so my brother-in-law, the the gentleman that's on the other line, kind of making sure the audio sounds good. We actually went down to uh, the Rio Grande River and we were metal detecting right underneath a bridge. <laughs> he, he found a it rang up really weird, but he and he dug it out and it ended up being a corset and it was real oh. creepy, like really. <laughs> creepy we left immediately because we were afraid we were going to find a body next we we're like nope that's nope we're leaving that's <laughs> i'm more curious like how it got there you know who's yeah. who's walking on that bridge it's like i've had it with this thing i don't want to know <laughs> or what was going on under the bridge yes yeah. exactly yeah i think it was what's going on under the bridge oh boy gotta love albuquerque man 
Yeah. <laughs> yeah. No, he we've we've found a couple of silver coins and some old, you know, pennies and I love metal detecting, man. I just have a blast. <laughs> it's one of my favorite things to do. I could, I could see the draw to it for sure. You haven't found any guns yet, huh? No, no guns. But uh, we never went back to the <laughs> we never went back to the bridge after that. So I'm sure. <laughs> I was actually that's probably a good idea. Yeah, I was actually telling my wife right now it would be a good time to go metal detecting because the river is so low. You know that like huge parts oh, yeah. of the river where you couldn't get to before because of the water is just available. So most of the spots you want to look for those bridge areas you probably find a lot of really cool and really crazy stuff awesome well, I, I hope you continue to find weird stuff <laughs> <laughs> thanks i do some gold panning too and i really enjoy gold panning on the side as well oh okay yeah oh, very cool yeah i had a buddy that was really into that yeah there's not a lot to find out here but when you do find even just a little piece of gold like you get so excited <laughs> that's good you got those those hobbies that you know, are kind of non-work related and, yes. and just something you can do that's so completely different. I think it's super healthy to, to have those. Um, I agree. You know, not everything has to be medicine or whatever your occupation is. <laughs> yeah. And the more that I do it, the better I feel. It is, it's just nice to get out and to do things that aren't involved with medicine. That also goes into that like hypervigilance, right? There's still times where like in large crowds, I can't I don't tolerate it very well, you know, because I, I can't keep an mm -hmm. eye on everything that's happening at that time. You know, <laughs> it's uh, it can yep. be a little oh, much. I, I know. Yeah, I know exactly what that feels like. You know, what, what I think is interesting, it sounds like your your hobbies are like almost very meditative. I, I would imagine like the constant kind of circling of the gold pan or mm -hmm. the, you know, going back and forth with the metal detector. It's It sounds, yeah. Sounds uh, very uh, meditative. Yeah, my wife calls them my old man hobbies. <laughs> <laughs> she just doesn't see the pleasure in it. <laughs> yeah. Awesome. Hey, look what I found over here. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. She's like, you don't have to show me everything. <laughs> I'm like, come on. <laughs> uh, well, Andy, I really appreciate you coming on today. It's been a great conversation. I love when I can just hang out, especially with people that I've never, you know, met or hung out with before and I get a good side of, of who you are and what you do, you know? No, it was, I am uh, so happy and, and uh, honored to, to be on your show and, you know, I, I hope um, I hope there's some takeaways from it, and I, I guess kind of to, to end it, I, I just hope people know that you know really nothing will get better until you until you make a change or have a support system that helps you make a change, and also know that recovery is not always quick. Yeah, time doesn't heal all wounds, you know. So uh, I appreciate the format that you've developed and the platform, and and thanks so much. Yeah, no problem. Thank you. And and you, you've offered a lot of really good, unique perspectives that we haven't seen yet. And you've reinforced a lot of the ones that we have talked about, which is, it's nice. It's nice. Again, we want providers to know that you're not alone. This is a safe place. Feel free to reach out if you need to. Again, you know, join the Facebook group page where other people get to go on and to share their stories and have that support and feel good. You know, and if you don't feel good, let's figure it out so that you do. Yeah, totally agree. Well, I'll, I'll see you at Millionaire. Yes, <laughs> I'm sure we will see each other again. Andy, thank you so much. I hope you have a good day, man. All right, you too, sir. 
Thank you for listening. Before we wrap up, we have a few important announcements to share with you. Firstly, we're excited to announce the launch of our brand new 911 Nonsense Facebook group page. It's a community where everyone can go to connect, share ideas, discuss topics from the show, and get all of the most recent updates about the podcast. We'd love to have you join us and be part of the conversation. Next, we want to ask you to rate and review our podcast on your preferred platform. Your feedback means the world to us and helps us reach a wider audience. By rating and reviewing the show, you'll be supporting us in a big way and helping others discover 911 nonsense. If you enjoy what we do and would like to support the podcast even further, we have a few options available. You can visit samspursuit.com to find the links to our 911 nonsense merch page and our recently released noon gear page. Every contribution, no matter the size, goes a long way in helping us continue to better the podcast. We know that not everyone is comfortable being on the podcast, but we still want to hear your stories and experiences. If you have a compelling story and would like to share it to be read by me in a future episode, please reach out to us via email at 911nonsense at gmail.com or through our website's contact section. If you choose to be anonymous, we'll make sure to respect your privacy while sharing your story in a way that resonates with our audience. Thank you again for tuning in. We truly appreciate your support and look forward to bringing you more engaging content in the future. See you next week.